The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. I'm Suzanne Phillips, and thanks for joining me today. At times, there seems no end to the worldwide violence faced too often by too many people. How do we cope? How do we buffer the pain of those we love or those we work with? How do we build up resilience to sustain, to prevent burnout, so that we can keep on going, connecting, and giving? We are very fortunate that today our guest and expert is Gay Logan. Gay Logan is going to discuss with us the portable calm, changing the brain, building resilience. Gay Logan is the executive director and founder of the International Center for Mental Health and Human Rights. She's a fellow of the American Group Psychotherapy Association. Based in Boulder, Colorado, she is an international trainer, psychotherapist, consultant, and documentary film producer. She has been dedicated to humanitarian relief, the training of educators and therapists for over 35 years. She is co-author of a contemplative-based trauma and resiliency curriculum for the UN Foundation. Her integrative model of online psychotherapy and training incorporates contemplative science, analytic psychology, neurobiology, and somatic awareness. Her evidence-based online training program called the Portable Calm has been proven to improve brain function and develop stronger resilience in eight weeks. Today, she'll be drawing upon that to help all of us. Gay Logan, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Suzanne, that's quite the intro. I hope I can live up to it. It's so kind of you. It's lovely to be here. I'm I'm honored. Thank you for coming. Um, Gay, let's start with the question, what made you develop the Portable Calm training program that we're going to be talking about? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think that um, those of us who might be clinicians, uh, who might be listening uh, in the audience, uh, and especially if you've had a focus on trauma, you've, I have been working with trauma and wounded communities since 1979 when I uh, started co-leading head offensive Vietnam vet groups and at the same time working with refugees from Cambodia from the Pol Pot regime. And at that time, I uh, was also a practicing Buddhist um, and I was watching, um, after my experience of being in the Tibetan community, and I was noticing, even as a young clinician, 
that there was a quality of resilience that I saw in Tibetan refugees that I didn't see in um, other refugee populations, um, and it intrigued me. Uh, so I began to think about it from the perspective not of belief but of contemplative practice. And as a trauma therapist, you know, I kind of went through the decades and sometimes, and I'm sure, Suzanne, you remember, you know, one decade there's a big fad about something and the next decade it's like, no, we're not into that anymore. That's malpractice now. (laughs) So there's sort of this evolving understanding of really what trauma is and how we can best build resilience. And I was asking particular kinds of questions that were rooted in, in a different place. They, they were really located in the question mark of contemplative practice. And it wasn't until about 15 years ago that neuro, uh, neurobiology and the whole field of interpersonal neurobiology really came online. And simultaneous with that was an application of neuroscience research on the long-term practices of mindfulness meditation, compassion meditation, and uh, breath work, and yoga, and essentially contemplative practices. So I began to track the neuro research about the brain's emergency circuitry, about concepts like neural integration, asking questions like what are the pathways to neural integration? How do we... How do we provide those kinds of resources for, for young kids, for adolescents, for therapists that are working with trauma, for humanitarian aid workers who are working in refugee camps, for, for the refugees themselves? Um, I started looking at the information on um, uh, South and Central America and uh, the number of refugees that are unaccompanied youth and their vulnerability to gang recruitment. And if you think about in the Middle East and in Africa, that would translate to terrorist recruitment. Hmm. So well, what is, what is, you know, what is happening? How do we, how do we create, uh, you know, um, internal resources that are calming that can allow people to maintain a moral compass, to be emotionally regulated, to have self-awareness, to have attention control, uh, to be able to bring these kinds of essentially neural mechanisms into attachment relationship. And luckily, and with great gratitude that I have for my colleagues who were, you know, really doing some of the the forefront work in looking at the integration of neurobiology and contemplative practice, I began to get completely excited about the questions I was asking in 1979. Why are these people with these particular contemplative practices seeming to manage genocide in a way that I see other populations not being able to? Well, let me stop you at this point because what you're saying is so relative and so relevant to, I mean, we just had another school shooting here in the States. And so when you mention that we want to even help children develop better capacity for self-regulation in the face yeah. of the unspeakable, we are right yeah. there in some ways today. Now, Absolutely. as a first step, let's redefine trauma so our listeners 
professional and parents, caregivers, etc. All of those groups overlap. Have a sense of what we really think of when we're thinking about trauma so we can move from that into the self-regulation. Yeah, it's such an important question. And a lot of our work in the portable calm and in the sort of larger umbrella training that we do, which is called, or that I've co-developed, is called contemplative-based trauma and resiliency training. So the first thing that we do in that is to understand the real neurobiology of trauma. And what comes out of that is essentially a rethinking of the trauma paradigm. So you'll see people who, uh, maybe clinicians who have more of a somatic orientation, um, uh, Peter Levine, Pat Ogden's work come to mind, but that uh, Bessel van der Kolk, for example, who's at um, the Trauma Institute in Boston and uh, very active with the Harvard community, um, that, that trauma isn't about the incident. We always think that trauma is about an incident. Um, but it's really not. Um, PTSD is not a given. You can be in an incredibly traumatic incident and not develop symptoms of trauma. So why is that? So we want to look at, like, what would be the preventative measures and what would be the restorative measures? And the answer is pretty much the same, that the capacity for strengthening neural integration and strengthens resilience. Now, let me just interrupt you one minute, Gay, to to have our listeners recognize. I love what you said. So the trauma is not the incident, not the shooting, not the car accident, not the war scene. Rather, it's, and you correct me, it's the symptoms of dysregulation. It's the dysregulation that our body appropriately goes into that we then cannot bring down. Is that correct? Yes, exactly, Suzanne. You really nailed it. I mean, so for survival reasons, the brain's emergency circuitry is is oriented to a kind of negativity bias or to seeing what out, what is out there that could be scary. Uh, so, in the perception of threat, and I'm not talking about threat, but the perception of threat, the brain's emergency circuitry activates. And uh, there's an alarm reaction that moves us into fight, flight, or freeze. And we've, we've all heard about that. Parents have heard about this. I think teachers know about this. Clinicians know about this. It's kind of part of our popular culture. We understand the concept fight, flight, and freeze. So the, bo- the body mobilizes. And trauma is actually the problem between the arousal system the the mobilization of arousal and the ability to get back to a baseline of calm, to bounce back to a self-regulated place. When people are in a cumulative state of trauma, that could be developmental trauma, where there's ongoing stresses that, you know, keep us upregulated and we can't downregulate, it's the mechanism of not being able to return to calm, to engage, if we're talking from a nervous system perspective, the parasympathetic nervous system. But it's to engage the mechanism in the brain that says, you're safe now, it's okay, we're okay now, which is such an important voice for a parent 
to say or a teacher to say that in this present moment, we are safe. I love And to be able to recalibrate the hippocampus after the activation of, you know, the adrenal or the, the adrenaline, the fight flight, then assesses, is this a, you know, coiled snake in the corner or is it a garden hose? Maybe it's just a garden hose. Okay, I'm safe. I'm safe in this moment. It was scary yesterday, but I'm okay today. So it's that ability to come back to calm. Now, one of the things you're already hinting at that I'm loving is your example of a teacher or a parent saying, you are safe now. You are safe yeah. in this moment. And one of the yeah. things I've heard um, Gay's work and in, in, in her workshops, one of the things I know you have said is that it really takes one person with that calming sense and message that can have a profound effect on helping that other young person's hyper hyper arousal and fight flight start to yeah. come down. Yeah, there's some really interesting studies on kids who have had, you know, ongoing trauma, maybe coming from environments where there was, um, you know, a lot of uh, environmental stress, uh, maybe abuse, neglect. Uh, ongoing stress for the parents uh, that then translates to the kids. Um, and that that kind of cumulative stress actually can have a long-term impact. The brain is experience-dependent. So exposure, a child's exposure or an adult's exposure to long-term stress can actually change the function and structure of the brain. But the amazing research about our inherent resiliency is that that process can be altered by the presence of just one calm, caring, competent adult. Mm -hmm. Isn't that amazing? So a kid who has a really tough home life, um, but there's a teacher or a school counselor or an uncle or a grandma or, you know, the mom of a friend or a dad who, who takes them, you know, to a game and can be calm. So the child is able to then, like scaffolding, borrow the nervous system of the calm other. And as adults, we need that as well that we, we, we co-regulate, and there's a lot of research on this, you know, uh, Stephen Porges, Bessel van der Kolk, um, I think Alan Shore talks a lot about this, but, you know, we are wired to connect. We have mirror neuron systems that enable us to understand, empathize, and feel the other. And that can get in our, get, get in, we can get in trouble with that, too, and we can talk about that in a minute, but, but we, but we can offer scaffolding to the other when another is dysregulated only if we have strong self-regulatory mechanisms. Right, right. That, so that's my calm can calm you, but if your distress distresses me, we're both in trouble. Which is why the idea of the, whether it's the therapist, the teacher, or the parent having their own stress regulators and their own capacity to access calm has an enormous impact on the children and or people that they're working with. 
Absolutely. And when I'm doing group therapy, for example, we do 10 minutes of breath work, grounding, and mindfulness in every session. When I'm working with a client or a patient, um, I will either in the moment say, I'm noticing that you're holding your breath. I'm noticing that you're uh, speaking really quickly. I'm noticing that your chest looks tight. I'm noticing that your shoulders are up in your ears. Let's take a moment. Feel the ground. Return to your breath. Lengthen your exhale. Get back to being here. Um, you know, really, a very simple intervention. I, the Portable Calm is a, is a longer, it's an eight-week program. It has daily awareness prompts. It has a audio recording and a meditation. It has a group component. And it's exciting because the people from all over the world are usually in your group um, working together uh, to develop these internal resources. But the, um, you know, but you could take the simplest form of that, which is an example of breath work and grounding. You can use that with kids. You can use that before you go into a session, if you're a clinician, you can use that in a therapeutic interview if you're a social service worker with somebody who's talking about a lot of stress. Um, you can use that to strengthen your neural circuitry to be able to reliably re-regulate with just even two simple skills, the lengthened exhale and feeling your feet firmly planted on the ground and noticing your seat bones. <laughs> so it's like you can, you can, boom, you can use these little strategies many, many times in a day if you're, let's say, on a scale of 1 to 10, if you're over a 3, to just teach yourself to entrain the mechanism to essentially change your own brain, brain yeah. structure and process. We're going to have to take a break, but we're going to come right back. And essentially, I'm going to repeat what Gay said, literally breathing in, slowly breathing out, feeling grounded with your feet. That seems small, but actually in terms of contemplative work, small is big from what Yes. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live with Gay Logan, psychotherapist, humanitarian, and real, really trauma expert. She's sharing with us from her online program, The Portable Calm, ways of strengthening our capacity for self-regulation and developing internal protective factors that help us cope with at times a lot of violence and unexpected trauma. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My Favorite Coffee Story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Every day, we're surrounded by technical buzzwords and jargon that can go way over our heads. Now, there's a show that brings it all back down to earth. Tune in for today, Tomorrow's Technologies, with host Jose Negron. We'll not only explain the new technologies that are shaping our world, we'll give you the benefits and backstory of these technologies. Listen for T3 with Jose Negron, live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Gay Logan, who is the author and creator of The Portable Calm, which is intended to really help people regulate their response to the impact of traumatic events in their lives. We were talking about a mini exercise just before we took a break. Now, Gay, I'm going to read to them a quote from William James that you you have put right in your training that I think is so telling of your work. And what he says is the greatest thing in all of education is to make our nervous system our ally instead of our enemy. And that's what you're doing when you help us with resilience and self-regulation. Maybe define resilience and self-regulation for us, Gay. Yeah. Um, well, just, just to say thank you, Suzanne, for um, you know bringing my one of my heroes online, <laughs> William James. Um, you know, he, he he wrote that in the Principles of Psychology in 1890. And I think it's taken until the last 15 years uh, for us to really begin to unpack the power of what he was suggesting or pointing to in that brilliant insight. Um, So to make our nervous system our ally instead of our enemy is to have, you know, an an understanding, a self-awareness 
of when we're in a kind of an optimal range of, uh, you know, uh, arousal, where we're not hyper-aroused, we're not hypo-aroused, we're not slumping and numb and kind of tuned out, and we're not agitated and anxious and and sleep, you know, having sleep issues and, you know, kind of maybe a little bit more aggressive. So if we could almost imagine um, uh, a kind of a, like if you were plugged into a graph and it that graph was going to kind of move with the fluctuations of your arousal. And I, I don't mean sexual arousal. I mean kind of physiological, emotional arousal. You know, I'm right now at about a, a three uh, on a scale of one to ten. I had some frustrations this morning with with um, a colleague who we had some conflict. I had um, an interaction with a friend who was um, upset in, in her marriage, and I I could notice that I you know if I didn't use my grounding, my breath work, my internal resources, I would probably start to fluctuate you know, away from a three and maybe up to a four or five. Um, So self-regulation is the capacity. It's the self-awareness. It's the attention control. It's the emotional regulation to be able to stay within a kind of an optimal amount of energy without getting dysregulated. So if I had a visual, if, I, if we had a PowerPoint and I could show you, you know, just imagine you're having an EKG and it's flipping around and you just sort of see this little fluctuation. But then imagine you hear a big loud noise and the fluctuations go outside of the bar. Um, and I think what happens for us is we get dysregulated by our lives, by our relationships, by the news, by by conflict that's happening, by our own anxieties. Um, I think we're living in a particularly anxious time right now, sadly. Um, And it's hard. It's hard for us to maintain the self-awareness that we've actually migrated away from a place of calm. So resilience is about the ability to notice and return, to bounce back, to a kind of baseline of calm. So I had a stressor, and I'm okay in this moment. I had a stressor, and I'm okay in this moment. So resilience, from my perspective, from from a neuro perspective, has a lot to do with how you can return mindfully, non-judgmentally, self-compassionately to the present moment and it can be mediated by very simple skills like we talked about in the first half of our of our conversation. I just want to add because it's so important, I think, what you're saying, and which is the movement, the very understandable movement between high anxiety, hyperarousal, self-awareness, and bringing it back. Sometimes people say to me, Gay, something must be wrong with me, I'm so anxious, or I'm so embarrassed that I'm so anxious, or yeah, how long are you yeah. going to stay anxious? So, yeah. I'm normalizing that in the face of life, listening to the news, daily work, transportation, etc., 
anxiety is really not so strange. It's pretty typical, right? But yeah, it's whether we can bounce back. It's whether we can yes. notice mindfully with self-compassion and return to a baseline, return to that three on a scale of one to... I, I practice these simple breathwork and grounding exercises, and we teach this in the Portable Calm. If you had a self-awareness scale on a scale of one to ten and you're over a three, lovingly, gently, wherever you are, lengthen your exhale, feel your feet deeply rooted into the ground, and just reset. Come back to a three. I'm, I'm happy to guide us through a very simple reset, but just the, the, the power of a self-awareness scale to bring yourself back to a different baseline. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, and, what are- it, and what happens over time, if you begin, you know, like, if for, for example, the people that uh, have gone through our program over time, we use the World Health Organization 5, uh, which is a well-being index, uh, before the eight weeks and at the end of the eight weeks. And we did, uh, we did a pilot study with 60 participants in four groups from all over the world. And the, the changes were really remarkably robust from just doing really simple practices daily and many times a day. Um, but they, there was an overall 33% increase in calm across the participants. Wow. Uh, a 26%, I think it was. I'm looking at my little bar graph here. Uh, let's see, a 26% increase in feeling active and vigorous, waking up rested and refreshed. Uh, also, 26% increase of something like a 13% increase in interest in life and a 19% increase in uh, mood, uh, positive ask, emotions. Let me ask you this, Gay. In terms of just what, what you're talking about, people's capacity to move to that sense of calm, one of the things people hear more and more is the value of self-compassion. Now, I yeah. wonder if you define that for our listeners and maybe give us a mini example of an exercise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kristen Knapp, I know who's been on your show, has done some beautiful research on it. She's uh, located in Austin, Texas. Uh, There's a lot of really good people doing some great um, research on it. I would define self-compassion as an attitude of kindness and understanding towards oneself or and perceiving maybe one's experience and, and particularly one's suffering as part of a larger human condition. And being able to be aware of painful experience without over-identifying or avoiding. Okay. So So what what that might look like, and I think some of the clinical considerations. um, So I'm. uh, I have two other um, uh, sort of um, wonderful communities that have been important part of my growth, and that's the Stanford. Care. It's the Compassion and Altruism Research and Education Community, and they've done a lot of neuro research on the, pra- the intentional practice of, com- of uh, compassion, as has the Max Planck Institute, um, Emory, MIT, uh, and so there's a lot of clinical considerations that we're now beginning to see that when people do an intentional practice on self-compassion or compassion for others, it actually... Uh, increases the self-compassion over 
increases in self-compassion over a month of intentional practice, reduce symptoms, severity, decrease depression, anxiety, rumination, thought, suppression, and the need to avoid. And, um, and it, it sort of engaging in less avoidance strategies following a traumatic exposure allow for a more natural healing process. So let me, so, give, you, let me give you an example of what I think it might be, and you'll correct me and we'll all yeah. learn. So for my person who's very, very anxious and is always faulting herself for being anxious, mm. she might say, okay, observe that she's really anxious again. And mm-hmm. then in a self-compassionate way, she might say, mm-hmm. well, most mothers of school children are anxious today because we had mm-hmm. a crisis yeah. yesterday. Yeah. And, and then what would her third... So that would be a, a perception of the experience as part of a larger human condition. It's like, I'm not alone in this. And this is hard for all of us. Right. And then the third step, which would be self-kindness... How would she do that? You know, um, so it kind of a, having an understanding towards oneself, uh, being non-judgmental, like I'm not a failure for feeling this. Mm-hmm. That is an act of loving kindness to say, you know, like you would to a little child, it's okay to be scared. So having that kind of voice directed to the self, it's okay that I'm feeling what I'm feeling. Of course I'm feeling what I'm feeling. And there's something very calming if we think of a parental voice or a teacher's voice or a calm, you know, warm uh, therapist saying, it's understandable that you feel that way. The problem is that we don't often offer that gift to ourselves. Right, right. You know, so then we get overwhelmed and then we want to avoid the stressor um, because we don't actually feel that we're okay it's almost like there's a narrowed band of acceptable emotion. And what we want to do with loving kindness and self-compassion is widen that band. Widen that band so that, that, so, so that we're not dysregulated by feeling what we feel. But sometimes anxiety is, is, is kind of a, I don't know what I'm feeling. I'm feeling three things at the same time. Maybe I'm mad. Maybe I'm sad. Maybe I'm, I'm frustrated. And so then bringing that self-awareness in and saying, you know what, maybe I'm anxious because I have a lot of feelings and I can name those feelings, right? Mm -hmm. But the self-compassion part is, I am okay. May I be free from suffering. May I live with more ease in the challenges I face. May I know peace. You know, offering that gift to oneself in kind of that language, you know, I'm, I'm hurting right now, I'm scared right now, but may I be free from suffering? Like everyone else, you know, just like me, I, just like you, I want to be free from suffering. Mm-hmm. Just like you, I want greater ease in the challenges I face. Just I think, like you, I want more peace in my life. I think what happens, Gay, is that when someone has a understanding and abuse of something, it seems like a mini technique, like recognizing what they're feeling, recognizing mm. others feel it, mm. and then having that internal soft, kind voice. Mm. Once mm-hmm. you know you can do that for you, you're less afraid of feeling a wide range of feelings. 
Yes, exactly. So you're you're less likely to be overwhelmed if you have a a kind of, I almost want to say a radical acceptance Mm -hmm. of whatever it is that arises in your thoughts and your feelings and your sensations. And I think it's the type of exercise or um, it's really a skill. It's a self-regulating skill that you can easily pass on to your children, your partner, um, the children you work with in a classroom. So that it's, it's, I think, really the type of contemplative practice that you share is quite contagious once you make it known to the people around you. Because everyone starts to feel that. We feel what, you know, we feel the nervous systems of each other, you know. It's interesting, the compassion training that I teach in the eight-week program in the Portable Calm uh, sequentially builds compassion muscle. But we start with self-compassion. Then we go on to compassion for a loved one. Then we go on to imagining compassion for a stranger. Then we go on to imagining compassion for a difficult other. Then we go on to imagining compassion for an enemy. Then we go on to a wounded community. Then we go on to all life. And we, and, and we play with growing the muscle, but starting with self-compassion. And this sequence, uh, it's called actually Tong Lin in the, in the Buddhist tradition. But it's a secularized, very neuro-researched, Stanford, Emory, MIT, you know, version of it, of, you know, years of monastic practice, then secularized, very simple strategies. And what uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was uh, surprised about was that when these uh, meditations were um, secularized and then researched at Stanford and at the other universities at the Max Planck Institute and other places for the purpose of understanding what happens in the brain circuitry with compassion practice as, as opposed to empathy. His Holiness the Dalai Lama didn't quite understand why it was that Westerners had to start with self-compassion. He didn't understand the concept. <laughs> so he was like, okay, if that's what you guys need, you know, then add it. It's fine with me. <laughs> but, but, you know, we live in a culture where I think we have a very uh, a kind of a, a harsh demand. Uh, we have, um, you know, a lot of competition that we have to deal with in life. We have stressors uh, in our culture that are endemic to our culture. And we also have a kind of a heightened sense of independence and I've kind of got to make it. And and I think all of that, you know, simultaneously brings up in the unconscious the fear of failure and these harsh judgments. So we, we began to soften all of that. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, you go said- ahead, Suzanne. You've said in your work that, you know, we we think about being empathic, but we also realize if we're empathic and empathic and empathic and never self-comforting and never self-caring, we burn out. Yes. In fact, um, you know, what the, one of the other uh, uh, the, uh, communities I'm very connected with um, is the Harvard Global Mental Health. I, I went through their training last year and and sort of, you know, so I'm an alumna of that organization, and they helped me with my research. They were the ones that said, you need to use the WHO5, and um, we, we did a lot of amazing stuff, and they let me teach some of this stuff, actually, in Orvieto with them. 
Um, but they, uh, their research would suggest that humanitarian aid workers, if you think about the translation to parents, teachers, in a stressful environment, uh, therapists working with a tough caseload, that humanitarian aid workers burn out in three years. They just burn out. They can't do it. And so, you know, from, a, from just the perspective of ethical duty of care, of, you know, providing resources for people who are working on the front lines, they have to actually begin to understand that the heartfelt empathy that probably brought them to this work is something that can also be a double-edged sword. And that it's um, when we constantly overuse from a neural perspective the empathy circuitry which is located right next to pain physical pain receptors in the brain which is interesting there's a kind of um, falling into a, a place of feeling overwhelmed and wishing to avoid and pull away um, because it is overwhelming and uh, Tanya Singer, who is a big researcher at the Max Planck Institute on, on compassion and humanitarian aid workers, noticed that when you implemented compassion training into their training, they were able to stay pro-social, turned towards, not have to withdraw, and able to take better care of themselves, get back to their own calm, get back to their own resilience, and they were able to stay more resilient. And I, and I think that's probably true for me, and I worked with, you know, pro bono um, wounded communities around the world, you know, since 1979, and I have not burnt out. <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, I guess there must be something to this. <laughs> well, it's a really important message, you know, to all our parents who worry so much yeah. about their youngsters yeah. that they yeah. the care and the portable calm that they use themselves is instrumental in sustaining them. Yeah, we we really, we begin with the caregivers, you know, whether it's a parent, a teacher, a school counselor, a therapist, a humanitarian aid worker, a human rights lawyer, an environmental activist, you know, like whoever's on the front lines, a soldier, you know, um, we've done a lot of work with the Veterans Administration. Um, but this notion of putting your oxygen mask on first, mm-hmm. you yep. know, that that you can't, you can't try to help others calm if you don't know how to get there within your own nervous system. Okay, we are going to take a break. It's such an important message that you're sending, and we'll be back with more techniques and Uh, what Gay calls building an internal landscape of skills. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Gay Logan. We're speaking about the portable calm as instrumental in helping self and helping others. Stay with us. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
There are so many ways to get your message out into the world. Why wouldn't you use as many media outlets as possible to promote your book, your business, or your brand? So how will you do it? Where will you start? I'm Paula Rizzo. And I'm Terry Gispiccio. Join us every week on Lights, Camera, Expert. Unleash your expertise. We'll show you how to get the media attention you and your brand deserve. Listen every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific on Voice America Variety. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio. Live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Can you truly be a change agent in your community? We think you can. Tune in every week for Envision with co-hosts Thomas Rosenberg and Ronnie Langer Kroger. The show is all about building an inclusive and just future by connecting people with ideas. Connect with what's happening in your community, your country, and around the world as we speak with amazing guests who are fostering change and making their communities better. Envision is heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Gay Logan. Gay is a professional who has literally trained educators, therapists, humanitarian workers across the globe for over 35 years, in particularly with a combining a contemplative practice with a psychological training, with somatic awareness. And she's been drawing from her Portable Calm Online program to give us some examples of some of the tools that she she calls it developing an internal landscape of skills that helps us regulate and re-regulate in the face of traumatic events in our lives. So welcome back and Gay, yeah, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about some of these skills. I know you mentioned intention setting and sanctuary practice. What are some of these skills our listeners might learn? Yes, well, thank you uh, for such a lovely framing of um, kind of what what we can what we can be working with. Um, the portable calm is, uh, and you can actually find the portable calm by going to portablecalm.com. Uh, and it really kind of gets into uh, a lot of the different pieces of it. I want to um, acknowledge my co-developer, Patricia Tollison, who's a remarkable uh, psychologist and um, been really helpful in so many ways in, in uh, helping me organize this and also, you know, envisioning it with me and helping me um, uh, with uh, some aspects of our research design. 
Um, the Portable Calm uh, is, a, is an online program. It's part of a larger training that, that we offer that's a certification training called the Contemplative-Based resilient, uh, Trauma and Resiliency Training. And it's level one. It's the put your oxygen mask on first training. We know from uh, research, Harvard, MIT, and other places that there's a sweet spot on an eight-week training. A lot of mindfulness trainings you'll, you'll notice are kind of eight-week. The compassion training at Stanford and Emory are eight-week trainings. But there's some, uh, some pretty robust research about an eight-week immersion training really gives you the space from the perspective of changes, structural and functional changes in the brain. And we've certainly seen the robustness of our outcome research. So it's not a four-week training. It's not a five-week training. It's an eight-week training. And the, um, the, uh, we, each week, we have uh, an audio meditation. Uh, actually, it's my voice. Suzanne was being very kind in the break and saying that my voice was very calming to her and she could imagine that, you know, and I, then I told her that the meditation program actually has my voice in it. Um, and it's, and it, uh, so there's a, there's a week of, what was that you're going to say, Suzanne? It's a calming voice, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so there's a weekly meditation that changes subtly. Uh, it, 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 it advances sequentially uh, and there's uh, six different components to it. And then that's the on the cushion. You know, you kind of create a commitment. You set an intention. I'm going to learn how to develop a daily contemplative practice and I'm going to get the support to do it. I'm going to get a weekly meditation. I'm going to have a support group that is processing uh, the challenges and the triumphs of the experience, and that's online, um, and facilitated by really good group facilitators, <laughs> and um, many of whom are kind of certified group psychotherapists who really want to create the most skillful kind of support group we can. Yes, and yes, think it, it, it's online. What are you going to say, Suzanne? I want to ask you about just some of these components so our listeners might be able to take some now. When you talk about, you talked about the grounding and giving us that mini example. When you talk about intention setting, yeah. What, so, what, so, this, so let me go through the sequence and then kind of okay. give a little sound bite for each part. So breath work with, it's really a focus on lengthening the exhale and it's a, a, a recalibration of the parasympathetic nervous system. Grounding enables us to become more embodied, to actually feel where we are in the moment and, and to use essentially the, the anchors of the feet and the seat and already we're building on the breath work. Um, from, from there, we, we go to um, sanctuary practice, uh, and that's kind of building an internal healing environment uh, that may have, uh, you know, nature or beauty involved, and that uh, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a, an almost a, an internal space that uh, sometimes people remember the garden that they were a, uh, a little child in or a mountain that they loved to hike in or a beach or a lake. And then they, over time, you know, begin to invite 
other support figures into that sanctuary, like an ally, a protector, or a nurturer. So these are kind of part, parts of the meditation that sequence over eight weeks. And out of sanctuary uh, comes intention setting. So we sort of, at that point, we feel like we've calmed the mind, you know, the, the, the person is feeling um, that there is kind of an internal sanctuary that they can retreat to, that somebody has their back uh, and, and might help them in the way of intention setting. Intention setting from a neural perspective um, activates and encourages executive functioning and agency. And part of recovery from trauma is the sense of agency. When I was in Sri Lanka after the horrific tsunami um, that killed 230,000 people in 12 nations overnight in the end of 2004, I was in Sri Lanka in 2005. And I was working in this one uh, fishing village and they were terrified to go back out to sea but what was healing for them was to rebuild their, feel- their, their fishing fleet. And, and so there was something in the process of rebuilding, the intention to go back out to sea and the activation of agency. There's something we can do. So intention setting is really important in terms of mobilizing self-care also. Um, the, the intention to do these practices, the intention uh, to uh, be more kind to oneself, the intention to practice compassion, the intention to go to that yoga class uh, or not eat, you know, overeat out of stress. I mean, you you can think of an intention every day. The intention, just the action of intention setting is really important for mobilizing um, resiliency. You know what? Um, go ahead, um, Gay. We only have another well, minute. I, yeah, and so the the other two components are embodied mindful awareness, uh, which is sort of a function of sensory stabilization. Uh, we might want to bring in some awareness of the body, awareness of the moment, and then compassion practice, which I think I mentioned before. We sequence out over eight weeks. So those are those are the components of the actual practice that are on the cushion. And then we have daily invitations that might be, remember your intention in the morning. Check your accountability. If you didn't follow through with your intention, be gentle with yourself. You know, so it's an awareness invitation that keeps you on track with the work that we're doing. It's, and it, it's really such a gift because one of the things we know in the aftermath of trauma is a sense of isolation, helplessness. Yeah. I don't know yeah. how I'll proceed, and this really offers that. I love the term, the portable calm, because we're yeah. almost out of time. How could people find you and even plan to maybe join in and take the portable calm online course, Gay? Oh, it'd be so fun. Yeah, we're always, every quarter we initiate a new program, and uh, we have two going right now. One is in Uganda for humanitarian aid workers, and one is in Sweden with a group of physicians who do refugee work. Uh, but we, we work with everybody. You know, we have, we have also war correspondents that, uh, okay, so you know. To, to get to you. So you want to reach us? By going to gaylogan at gmail.com. That's, that's to reach me. Uh, 
And if you want to learn more about the Portable Calm or the International Center, you go to Portable Calm, P-O-R-T-A-B-L-E-C-A-L-M dot com. Uh, and if you want to look at the work of the International Center, uh, you can just Google International Center for Mental Health and Human Rights or take those initials. I, um, <laughs> International Center, I-C-M-H-H-R dot org. Okay. Gay, I, I want to thank you for all the work you do globally and particularly for the gift you gave us by being our guest today and sharing the portable calm with us. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Suzanne. And um, I, I very much enjoyed being with you in this. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, thank you. Thanks again to my listeners. Remember, you can hear this show and any prior show as a podcast by 6.30 tonight. This will be a podcast on your iPhones, on iTunes, on Voice America, Psych Up Live. Drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week.